how much do you really know about the environment? Well, and specifically, how much do you really know about like wildlife and how people relate to wildlife and the environment and ecosystems and how introducing certain animals uh, drastically creates a different ecosystem? I mean, there's a lot going on there. Uh, I know a little bit, but certainly don't know a lot. And that's why I'm having this conversation today with Dr. Stephanie Shuttler. And uh, Stephanie's a wildlife biologist. I got to tell you, I don't know anybody who's a wildlife biologist. So as soon as I came across her profile, I was like, I have to talk to this person, get an idea of what's going on in the wildlife community, and really gain knowledge and become better versed in it. So we can make some changes that needs to happen. So I had a great time in the conversation I had with Stephanie, and I think you guys will certainly uh, hear that. So without further ado, Dr. Stephanie Shudler. today uh stephanie shuttler is it shuttler is that how you say it? yes shuttler got it right up first time got it <laughs> well i wanted to talk a little bit about wildlife biology because it sounds interesting i'm fascinated by what you do so i mean where did the motivation to do this come from for me, it was all about my love of animals, um, which I mean, sounds kind of <laughs> obvious given it's wildlife, right. but I, I didn't know you could become a wildlife biologist until um, later on in life. And in college, I, find, I found out about it. And um, actually, when I thought about scientists, I thought about Jane Goodall. She was really the only scientist yeah. I know. I know a lot of people think of like, scientists and lab coats and stuff like that. But I thought of Jane Goodall, who um, went to Tanzania to study uh, chimpanzees. And I, I like, I love nature and I loved animals, but I was not as outdoorsy as that. My family mm -hmm. wasn't. We would take this annual trip to um, Allegheny State Park and our version of, of camping was, was staying at hotels, <laughs> but we would be like in the, like close to the park. So it felt very rural and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I thought about wildlife biology, um, I, or actually I didn't even know it was a career option. I thought you just had to be like Jane Goodall and, and, and <laughs> go out there and do it. And I was like, that doesn't seem like a real job. Yeah. Um, so I discovered it when, um, my brother suggested I study abroad. And at the time I was actually studying theater and biology was a backup career um, so that I could become a physician if, if, um, if it all failed, cause that was a financially stable job. Yeah. And I just, I was just really attracted to this one brochure uh, program in Kenya and I went for it. It was all about wildlife management and, um, and yeah, I just, I just decided, or I learned that you could do all these different positions in the United States and, and elsewhere, and you could still do research in Africa. You didn't have to live there. So um, that's when I decided to do it. And I already loved animals. Um, 
but yeah, I'd, I'd say for me, it was like my love of animals. Um, but I would say people are really driven by two things. They're, they're usually driven by like, um, a species or a group of species, or they're driven by scientific questions. Like they have to figure out answers to things. And then, um, probably a third reason is, um, conservation as well. I, I was just deeply affected by conservation as a child. I grew up, um, in the eighties and nineties and like in the nineties, there was this, there was a big environmental movement. So that hit me, um, hard. So I'm not as like, I am a scientist. I'm definitely a scientist, but I'm not as driven as much by the science side as I am about like the applied, the applied side to help wildlife. Yeah. It's, um, I find that fascinating and I'm going to get to the fancy scientists. We're going to get to the, <laughs> like, I love that name, by the way. I think it's oh, great. good. Um, <laughs> What is something you think would be surprising for people to know about what you do in your work? Well, this, the surprising answer is probably really boring, um, <laughs> but but I think I think most people when they think about wildlife biologists, they think you're like constantly in the field and yeah. you're constantly like touching animals or or like I don't know bottle feeding animals and stuff like that. <laughs> it's like a commercial or something. <laughs> So, um, so that's more like rehabilitation work or, or, or zookeeping and even, even modern zoos, they, they want to have a, a distance between them and, and the animals. It's becoming less and less, um, hands off and, and more no contact because mm. they want to keep the animals more natural and more, yeah. more wild, at least, at least the good zoos. So if you, you probably seen tiger King, so oh like my Joe, exotic, <laughs> Joe exotic zoo is not a good zoo. Anytime <laughs> where you can handle cubs, it's, it's not a good zoo. We can no. talk about that too. Yeah. Um, but, um, so yeah, so a big part of my job is actually, um, especially post PhD is, um, writing papers, reading other scientific papers, um, and analyzing data. So a lot of indoor work and as technology improves, we don't have to go to the field as much. So we have like sensors, like, like I worked with camera traps. So you, you put them on the tree and they take pictures of animals as they walk by and before, um, so that was only a couple of decades ago where we didn't have camera traps, you know, scientists would have to go to the, to the forest or, or wherever. And if they couldn't see the animals, like there's so many animals that are difficult to, to see, mm -hmm. um, not all the animals are out in the open, like deer or, or squirrels. Um, you'd had to like study them, um, like through, um, other signs like indirect signs, like scat or, or markings or things like that. So, um, yeah, a lot of my work is actually indoors. I, I don't handle animals, uh, um, ever for my job. And usually when, when wildlife biologists do, it's like I said, it's a, it's a small part unless, unless maybe if you're, I guess birders can do it a lot sometimes and, um, amphibians and reptiles, but, but even if you're, you're doing something like where you attach a tracker to a mammal, um, you're just not doing it that much because you're tracking so few mammals, the, the trackers are expensive and it's expensive to, to actually attach it because you have to have vets with you and anesthetize them. Well, it depends on the animal. Right. Um, but, um, and then the trackers last a really long time too. So you just, and, and they're satellite now. So you can just sit in your office and get the, the locations of the animal, um, from, from in, nice in your office. Whereas before, like <laughs> I said, you had to go to the field with these big antenna. 
Um, so yeah, I spend a lot of time indoors. That's probably like, that's the most surprising, but not funny yeah. answer. <laughs> well, you know, it's just like, it's like one of those fields, I think where like, you're swept up by what you saw in a movie or something. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I, I bet Stephanie's out there in the rainforest <laughs> touching gorillas or something. It's just like looking, let's take a closer look. You know, <laughs> it's like a thing. I did. I, I did get to do cool field things like for my PhD, mm -hmm. I studied forest elephants. So I definitely those those are animals that you can. Well, you can see in certain places. They're, yeah. they're difficult to see in most of the range. But yeah, I did study them and and watch them. Um, but my the last like seven years, um, all of my I did do some field work, but not very much. Um, mm -hmm. Most I worked with camera traps, and most were actually set up by by volunteers. So I was looking at animals, but the pictures of them, and um, right. I think that's really fun because you just get to see them in a way that you know yeah. they're they're um, the guards down. They're just doing what they do. <laughs> just what do you, you know, man? There's a lot of things I want to get to, but it made me think <laughs> of like what is a what do you think? people's relationship with animals is currently like our current societal relationship with animals oh, wow. in the that's wild? A, that's a great question. Um, I think it totally depends on the type of animal it is and uh, species. So mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, animals like snakes, people have a, a fear of them um, or there's certain animals we don't like, like, like we find disgusting like cockroaches yeah. or or i think about like all the animals we want to exterminate around our house i think i think the biggest problem that we have right now or, or relationship right now is very disconnected and and one of the reasons i in my career i recently switched more to doing science communication through my website and youtube channel because i want to reestablish that connection and that that's really what's important for people to to have conservation attitudes and behaviors that's what that's what research shows so um so kids especially going out into nature and seeing animals um then they become emotionally connected to them and mm. other animals and then they start to care so right now um and i'm guilty of this too we're spending a lot of time indoors and um, it's kind of like the animals are over there. And especially if you go to a zoo, like you really see that, oh, the animals are over there yeah. and there's there's no animals around me. But in reality, I mean, they're everywhere. And um, I mean, wildlife in terms of wildlife biology usually refers to land animals and um, non-insect animals. Um, but the term wildlife in general really means any any animal and some people even consider plants and fungi wildlife um so so yeah i guess i guess um we think it's over there but it actually is mixed in with with all of us and and there's some species that are coming closer to us that have um you know like coyotes live in downtown chicago and that's a pretty new Whoa. phenomenon <laughs> within the past several decades um, in, in Mumbai, leopards live in the city of Mumbai. So, so some animals have, <laughs> have made a comeback and, um, and yeah, there's birds always all around us in New York city. I'm sure you have, um, squirrels and, and, um, pigeons. It might not be yeah. like the most <laughs> yeah. exciting animal, but you have animals <laughs> all around you, no matter where you live. It's funny is I, I live in Blaine, Washington's right on the border of Canada. 
And I guess it's mm -hmm. like a very famous migratory pattern place for birds. Like we have the craziest birds here. We have like, I see eagles every day. It's constant. It's yeah. so, it's like normal here. Blue herons, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then we've tried to teach my daughter about that. Like getting, we're like, we're seeing, you know, the majesty of a, of a, of a bird. And, and it's much funny. You mentioned like some people think about uh, plants as being wildlife. I never thought of that. Like, what does that I think it's from? a new, it's, it's a newer thing. Um, I, because people are just so specious, even, even scientists. So, um, I just mean like they have a preference for certain species. Yeah. So like when you think of conservation, you think of elephants, tigers, and there there's mixed research to show that like, if you fundraise for a tiger, will it benefit all the other animals in the mm. habitat? Mm. Um, but or, or sorry, if you do, if you do um, management for a tiger, if you okay. fundraise, you can, you can absolutely use that money to pay for other animals. But um, I think, yeah, I think like they just want to change the narrative that, that all beings play an important role. And, you know, the whole circle of life thing with the Lion King, sure, you, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you kick out oh, one. Simba. <laughs> And you, you know, you, you miss one species or one species declines that can inter impact in some cases it can impact a whole ecosystem. So I think, um, just kind of like how we're talking with people and, and inclusivity, like including all the species. Yeah. Isn't that kind of like with like whales and fish and all that, like how, you know, if we through, um, oh gosh, I'm messing this up. I was watching the, I'm like anybody, right? I watched a documentary on it, uh, about it. I'm like, <laughs> It was well, like some of them are very good. Yeah. And it was about like, you know, we overfish the seas and then that affects whales and their eating patterns and things. It feels like yeah. we're starting to like understand this more. Like, hey, you know, th these are tr this thing triggers the next thing. It's like dominoes. Do you exactly. do you sense in your profession that more people like a, a general awakening of more of this from the general public? It's so hard to tell because most of my experience when I talk about my research is like giving a talk at, at I worked at a, at a museum. So um, our museum was free. So it actually was probably more representative of the general public than other museums because you might be selecting for people who are already interested in, in nature and wildlife. Um, they're willing to pay the admission. Um, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say. I think people, I think people really have a fascination with animals and nature, but I don't know if we're necessarily, I don't know if our knowledge has increased a lot. Mm. And I mean, there's definitely issues that people are confused about and the science is really clear on. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of, and this is another reason why I switched more to science communication is because I found that like you could research things to death, but if people aren't changing anything, then there's really no point to the research, especially with conservation. Mm. Um, so like I think of climate change, obviously, where climate change has been, or vaccines, they've been really mm -hmm. well studied. Um, and, you know, if the public doesn't believe in it, or if they don't, um, if they don't want to listen to the data or understand how the data was collected, and therefore don't don't trust it, then it's really a communication issue and not a, a science issue. That's fascinating. Uh, can you expand on that? Because I think that's, that's a, a very hot topic. 
today on some level. It's like, okay, well, like you just said, well, the research is very clear mm-hmm. on something, but yet the people are not changing their habits. Maybe some specific examples in your field of that that you can talk about. Well, in my field, um, I mean, probably climate change is the is the biggest one um, mm-hmm. or tang- tangential to my field. I don't directly work in, in climate, um, but climate affects all species on the planet. Um, but I think I think scientists learn from data, so they think that everyone learns from data. And there has not been a lot of investment in science communication or science. I mean, I guess we're taught science in school, but we're really not taught, we're taught how the scientific method works, but we're not taught like it in practice. Like, like I didn't really understand growing up that there was still like stuff to be discovered to tell you the truth. Like, <laughs> like, cause you, cause when you're in science class, like, you know, everyone, you just study and you, and you look for the answer, you That's know, right. and the teacher always has the answer. So, um, I have a program that I just started for kids and like a big thing that I'm trying to teach them is like to keep asking questions. Cause that's, that's really what science is all about. Um, so, so yeah, so people, I can't remember where I was going with this, but, um, <laughs> okay. but people, um, yeah, it's a communication issue and scientists I think have, have historically always been, been like more data, more data, more data and more graphs. And, um, people don't, people don't change because, it conflicts with something they already believe. Okay, a good example of, of um, my field is like the wolves out west. Okay. Um, so like there is um, people people who live amongst the wolves. A lot of them don't like the wolves. They shoot. They want to shoot them, or they have shot them illegally or legally. Mm-hmm. And um, and in many of these cases, um, or in Yellowstone in particular, the wolves were reintroduced. So they yes. hadn't been there for a while, and then people had to get used to them. And of course they don't stay in the park. They go outside the park Mm -hmm. and, um, they do kill, kill, um, you know, livestock once in a while, but not much. And like the research shows that killing them does not help, but people just still want to kill them or, Mm -hmm. or here and like, or here coyotes is another big one. We, we have, um, studies that show that killing coyotes it, it definitely doesn't help. Um, and it might even make the problem worse. That's what the trends seem Mm. to be saying. And, um, again, people just, I don't know exactly why they don't like coyotes. Um, I guess, I I mean, they do kill, they do, they do kill dogs, um, Uh small dogs. So I understand that, but, and I guess they kill outdoor cats too. And, um, some people like that because they hate outdoor cats (laughs) because the cats kill birds. Right. Um, and then there's a bunch of cat lovers, but, but yeah, like even if I were to talk about the data and the trends, they, they, like, I've talked to people on like Instagram or my social media about this and they just like will argue with me. And, um, so, so really science communication is, is about, um, trying, trying to you to take your message and put it in a lens that, that the people can understand or relate to. Yeah. So with, with climate change, um, I think that scientists should try to embed it more in people's religion and not, not necessarily like, um, you know, putting it in the religion, but using passages from, I mean, I'm most familiar with Christianity, but like using passages Mm -hmm. from the Bible where it talks about loving the earth and caring for the earth and, and, 
use that at, to help spread a message rather than this, this narrow scientific message that doesn't resonate with people. I love that. That I had never thought about actually before. Well, because <laughs> I think, do you think there's like, for scientists in general, you're living in this world of deeply embedded scientific knowledge. And sometimes mm -hmm. there's this issue of not being relatable to most people, you know, like there's exactly. a severe lack of digital literacy and scientific literacy. I mean, like you have your doctorate, right? I believe so. Mm -hmm. I have my, I have a doctorate. Now we can look at a research study and I can understand the methodology, the end number, mm -hmm. you know, statistical analysis. But I mean, you realize most people don't know that, right? Like they don't no, like, absolutely. and they don't really care either. Like they're like, anyways, what's the results of this study? And uh, is it, is it interesting? <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, it's, it's and strange. It's yeah, and I was on another podcast where they were talking about like how how can someone look at a study and know if it's like solid or not? And yeah. I mean, that's a that's hard even for me. Like if I were to like if there was a study saying that like blueberries reduce your risk of cancer and I were yeah. to look at that study, I I could read the methods and understand them, but I'm not necessarily familiar if that's like the best yeah. method in that field. Like you really have to be on top of your research and know like what good sample sizes are for mm -hmm. that field. Um, but, but yeah, it's complicated. What's your, and then also journals too, like, you know, there's better mm -hmm. journals and worse journals. What's your doctorate in? It's in a sports education leadership uh, with an emphasis oh, cool. in behavior modification. This is long-winded behavior modification and sports and exercise settings. Uh, oh. so it's really it's just human behavior, understanding how people behave, but in particularly why people exercise, why they don't exercise and defining what exercise is and isn't. And, and then really getting to the origin biologically of why people feel like they don't want to exercise. I've been on a lot of podcasts talking about that and kind of the anthropological mm. and biological kind of uh, history of why humans just don't like to exercise. And uh, so it's been very interesting it's conversation. Fun. It's not fun. <laughs> and it's biologically is not something we really, uh, you yeah. know, speaking of conservation, kind of funny. Like I, when you said conservation, I'm like, man, I think of conservation so differently, like when that word, because I think of like exercise conservation and the history of humans, we've conserved our calories for hunter, hunter mm -hmm. and gathering, you know, tubing, reproduction. And so what we currently do is so uh, foreign to us, you know, somebody runs in a treadmill, you know, exercising for the purpose of health, like structured is foreign to our biology. So mm -hmm. it makes sense you shouldn't like it because it's not natural. Biologically, it's the opposite of what we're, what we've been doing forever, type of thing. Yeah. And I think of that word conservation. I kind of curious about that word. I've heard it so much, but what does that actually mean? And and what you're doing because I don't know if people know honestly, really. On it. Oh, geez, that's that's a you ask really good questions. <laughs> um, I would say. It is a debatable term, and I think it's changed with um, with time. But I think historically, with conservation, people had more of like a preservation type of attitude. Mm -hmm. So, 
like will like like the United States is big on national parks, and I, th- I think they yeah. were the first to make national parks. But like create a national park, separate humans from it. So yes, we can visit national parks, but nobody lives in them. And, um, you know, even taking people out of national parks, which has, um, you know, huge implications for indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, this still happens today. There's there's national parks that were declared um, not so long ago. Um, But I think, yeah, more of that, like hands off, like like keep everything natural. Um, But I think now. Uh, well, we can't just have animals in protected areas. They need different animals need different requirements. So some, some are just not big enough for animals. And like you mentioned, migratory birds, they're mm-hmm. going to need, you know, parks down a whole coast and, and to across two continents. Yeah, yeah, wow. <laughs> and, yeah. and you can't always do that. So um, I think, I think the more turn then the term now, I think more has to do with, um, like, I guess it's still preserving as much as many species and as much biodiversity as possible. But I do think there is more of a human integration and, uh, Hmm. and less of a, less of a a need to, to separate the two. So like, so more, more research in, in where humans live and in more urban settings and that, and understanding that animals live um, outside of parks. Right. I mean, you know, you had mentioned about animals are living, I mean, you know, in Chicago, there's animals mm-hmm. and things like that. Like, do you think that this is a, a product of a lot of deforestation and things of that nature? I'm trying to understand this myself. I'm like, we're living closer and closer to animals. What are the implications of that? Totally depends on the, the species. Um, but I mean, so development in, in general is bad. It will kill species mm-hmm. no matter what. Um, but that being said, you can develop in a way to minimize that. So, um, like Vancouver does a really great mm-hmm. job of being a green city. They Definitely. incorporate a lot of, um, a lot of parks that are more natural. Um, I think their goal is to become like the greenest city in the, in the world. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. And, um, what, what was your question again? I'm sorry. Let's <laughs> make sure you thought after that. No, like what's the what impact? What was the impact? Oh yeah, yeah. What's the impact? Yeah. Um, that being said, though, um, animal some animals have made a comeback, or some animals some animals even thrive with human development. Oh really? Um, oh. Mm-hmm, because I mean, if you think about like raccoons, pigeons, I mean, oh, all those my. animals thrive with it. <laughs> so you can they can adapt, um, and there's also like like different, um, habitats created with human development, like edges and, um, you know, just different structures. So some animals do well. Um, but in general, yeah, most, most development is definitely, um, correlated with by loss of biodiversity. Interesting. I'm learning a lot here. I got to tell you, this is pretty (laughs) crazy stuff. Um, yeah, we actually did a study on on the mammals in Raleigh and DC, and we found that the diversity and the abundance was was not significantly different from the wild spaces around hmm. the city. Um, but this but this was for for mammals and larger mammals, so so mammals that could be captured on a camera trap. Yeah. Um. So no so no bats or no small mammals. Um. 
And the other thing about our area is a lot of the sensitive species have already gone extinct. So, um, so wolves no longer live here in the Eastern United States and, um, cougars no longer live here, even though people will, will tell me that's not true, (laughs) but they no longer (laughs) live here in the United States. So those species, um, would, um, have likely have been most affected by development anyway but yeah the speech most species were not effective but it was, it was really only bobcats that were affected a little bit and yeah. i think coyotes a little bit but not that much but yeah in general coyotes are really really good at adapting and right. that's why they've been able to move into chicago and and la and new york city wow is there i don't know this may be a strange question but like is there one species of animal that is like critically important to the planet's health? I don't know if there's one species, maybe us, because we can control <laughs> the, out, the outcome okay. of everything. By yeah, that's probably behavior. true, but you know. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, there's very important species for each or, or in different ecosystems right um, or ones that are maybe heavier weighted like i don't know like i always wonder that it's like well if this species went away or is extinct it would like drastically change the ecosystem of a certain environment yeah so so forest elephants and elephants are in general are like that so really? for mm-hmm so they can they can change the structure of so savannah elephants can t- it can change like a more forest area and make it almost like a desert because they knock down trees so yeah so in places like south africa where they have a lot of elephants that can actually be bad for some other animals um but forest elephants they are being um poached right now really badly and they are important because they're seed dispersers. So uh, they they eat fruits and then they poop them out. And of course mm-hmm. they travel. And when they poop them, you know they're they're moved, you know, hundreds of meters away, so that the seed can then or the trees can then repopulate in different areas. And some some species of plants are even exclusively dependent on forest elephants to germinate. So they need to be eaten by a forest elephant. Um, so if forest elephants go extinct, yeah, you'll, you, you will definitely lose some species. You will, the forest will look different because, you know, certain species won't, won't travel as far. It will, it will likely reduce biodiversity and forests are really important for the planet because they absorb carbon. Right. So there could be some pretty gigantic impacts, no pun intended for, yeah, <laughs> for, exactly. for the forest elephants. <laughs> Did you see, like, I just saw this. I swear I wasn't looking this up for this interview. <laughs> it just came to me, damn algorithms. It was like the California condor is going to be reintroduced to the Pacific Northwest at some point. I just literally I just saw that. I haven't heard that. That's great. I don't even know why. Like I, like I see that, I go, oh, that sounds good, but I have no understanding of why that's important. Well, I mean, condors and and vultures in general are really important for scavenging. Um, But I think, I think in the case of the condor, it's not necessarily that their loss has a gigantic impact on the ecosystem, because I would expect that. No, I'm not an expert, but I could expect that, um, like vultures, like turkey vultures and stuff, could uh, could take their place. So in that case, I think it's more of like the idea of saving a species that condors, you know, are these amazing species with large wingspans and, um, you know, we should save them because we, we are able to, 
And they're actually, um, they're a pretty good conservation success story because they, they were um, impacted um, by DDT, which oh. um, weakened their eggshells. Wow. And, um, and yeah, there are just so few of them. So they had to have reintroduction programs done with the zoos. And it looks, I guess, yeah, it looks like they're expanding their range. So that's good. Yeah, I was like, okay, this sounds like a good thing, you know, but I don't have the knowledge of like, like when I think about like that Yellowstone, like I, I go to Yellowstone a lot. I love that place so much. And, uh, and I remember when they were talking about reintroducing wolves mm -hmm. and still I'm like, why? Like what's like, wh like take me behind that. Like what's the mechanism behind reintroducing a species like that into the environment? So again, there's different motivations. I think some people were like, you know, wolves used to be here. We should bring okay. them back because it's like the right thing to do. And in the case of wolves and usually predators in general, especially apex predators, yeah. they can actually influence the ecosystem. So, mm. so Yellowstone is actually like a classic example of what we call a trophic cascade where, um, what where a word, like, trophic like, cascade. Yeah. <laughs> what a phrase. What the heck? We're like, well, it's like one animal will have a big impact on other ones. Oh, okay. So, so with wolves, even the presence of a wolf will change the behavior of elk in the park, their their oh. main prey. So even if a wolf never eats an elk or, or, or preys upon an elk, the elk will act differently. They won't, they won't be so bold. They won't go mm. into like you know, the fields and just eat calmly. They know wolves are around. And um, so this allows different plants to come back. And then um, that has different implications on um, other wildlife, like the beavers, and they could create dams. So there's this, there's this video called, um, I actually didn't know about until recently, which is terrible. But somebody was like, I read something about coyotes changing rivers. And I was like, what? what? Wait a minute. <laughs> but video is called wolves, wolves change rivers because the, the cascading effects all eventually, like like the beavers changing the dams, they actually affects the course of the river. Whoa. So it's 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 about it's basically about like like what would have a big impact in bringing things back to the way they used to be. I see. The complicated part with conservation is like how far do you go back? That's um, yeah a good a good question and something that people debate because things are changing all the time. Like, like if you actually think, or, you know, some people argue that people um, were part of the cause at least for killing mammoths and, and yeah. mastodons. So like, you know, so some, some scientists actually have the idea, like should we bring elephants over into North America and they are not the exact same thing as, as mammoths or mastodons, but their foraging behavior and like just the fact that they're big and trampling and stuff, it actually affects all the, the soil and the plants or bison are another big one. Um, yeah. they've, the, the, um, the Midwest and West has changed a lot because of the loss of bison. So I think, I think usually people think about like big players, um, in terms of ecosystem impact, they have to think about the public too. Like what is the public willing to support? Like, yeah. like wolves, I th in Colorado, it just passed, but I think by the thinnest of margins, it was like, you know, 50, 49 in favor of wolves. So that's another big thing is, is no matter, cause, cause these programs are expensive. They have to mm -hmm. either transport the animals or they have to, um, 
captive rear them and um, reintroduce them. Oftentimes there's a lot of um, like genetic work and, mm. um, you know, housing and everything. So, so it's an expensive thing, which of course taxpayers pay for it. You need public support for, and then if you're going to spend all this money to get a wolf to survive and, and released into Colorado, but the residents don't want it and they shoot it. Like, it's like, it's like a big right. waste of money as what well as heck, effort man? and energy. <laughs> so, um, so scientists, yeah, they have to think about all these different factors and it's, it's, it's not just easy as like putting a wolf Dizzying. out there. I mean, actually, even just thinking about <laughs> elephants being in North America, I had like this thought in my mind, like there's elephants just all over the place and just walking around. I'm like, people would go nuts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There actually is a, a, a sanctuary in Tennessee for elephants. Oh. That's pretty big. And the elephants are all free roaming. So that would be a cool place oh, to look at habitat. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. So what's your, uh, before I get to the fancy scientists, because I definitely <laughs> want to check it out. Um, what's the kind of history of zoos and the relationship we have with zoos? Like you mentioned this kind of newer progressive idea about zoos. I don't think a lot of people are hip to this idea. Yeah. They don't know, you know. So historically zoos were just meant for entertainment. Like, you know, oh. if you think like really like centuries ago, you know, explorers would go to different places or millennia ago and they would, um, you know, take these animals because they looked cool and, and put them in cages so people could see them. Now, as we learn more about animals and um, conservation, zoos have changed to um, still educate or enter entertain the public, but educate them as well. I mean, people do go to the zoo for fun. If you have mm -hmm. kids, you're like, let's go to the zoo. You're not necessarily saying like, let's go to educate them. Um, it's more like a fun thing to do, yeah. but zoos now know that, um, you know, or a lot of people, this is the only way they see a lot of these animals, um, yeah. myself included, like there's many animals I've never seen in the wild that I've seen in zoos and, um, they can serve as an educational platform. And if like, again, if those kids can have those emotional connections with animals mm -hmm. at a young age, it can, it can have a big impact. It can, they can also spread conservation messages that, that can change people's behavior. It's, it's hard to do, but they can do that. Um, but they also are important for conservation. And like I said, it depends on the zoo. So zoo is a very loose term and there's like really amazing zoos. And then there's zoos that should be shut down in a heartbeat yeah. or the, or the animals would honestly all be better euthanized. Like they're so awful. Wow. Um, so, so like the better zoos are usually those accredited by the association for, um, um, zoological, um, and aquariums or for zoos and aquariums in the United States, AZA, but they'll have, you know, bigger habitats, more realistic or enclosures. They will have enrichment, which is, um, like activities for the animals to do, um, or, or just different like stimuli that will encourage them to do more natural behavior. And then the roles that zoos play for conservation is um, like when you're talking about the condor program, they had to captive raise all those, those chicks and, and you do that through a zoo. So there's a lot of species that people don't know about that are endangered and are little, and some of them might not even be like shown to the public. Like they might mm -hmm. be like little frogs or insects and zoos are really important for, for breeding those and then, and then um, reintroducing them to the wild. 
There is also populations or species out there that are very vulnerable to extinction. So um, like in Colombia, there's a species of monkey. They're, they're only found there. They're critically endangered. And I don't know, like say like a major catastrophe happened in Colombia, then that species would go extinct. Zoos could be a reservoir of that species. And um, across zoos, you have enough genetic material that you could breed the species and then reintroduce them into the wild. Um, but, oh. but those are the main purposes of zoos. But um, really, anytime you're going to a zoo and it's like just cages yeah. or you can touch the animals, that's a that's a big red flag too. You, you, it, the only time you should really be able to touch the animals is if if there's a if there's a zookeeper with the animal, and usually it tends to be animals more like snakes or turtles or yeah. um, even domestic animals. Um, but yeah, like the Tiger King thing where you get to pet the cubs and stuff, that is a big red flag that it's bad for the animals. I mean, what a, what a mess. <laughs> that whole thing is like just crazy. It was one of the more outrageous yeah. things I've ever seen. I was like, this guy's nuts. <laughs> like, yeah. Just in there with them and it's like, oh, okay, these tigers, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. no big deal. So you say zoos are like progressing more towards where they need to be at this point? Oh. Yeah, and it's still, I mean, it's still a debatable subject because like animals like elephants and chimpanzees, they're so intelligent, yeah. they're very social. Some some people think that they don't belong in zoos at all. And some zoos recognize that they don't have the facilities to keep animals like elephants and they have released their elephants to sanctuaries. Um, but others, they think like, you know, the elephants are a big draw and they mm. keep them. Um, but yeah, as we learn more about animals, we, we learn, you know, that they're, they're not happy in these, in these captive oh. environments or, or some of them aren't some, some do fine in captive environments. Right. Um, but again, it's a balance between like, okay, if people never see an elephant, will they care about elephants or, right. you know, do we need to have some in captivity that, and the, the better thing about zoos now too, is that, um, it's pretty much all captive breeding, especially for mammals, birds. Um, they they really don't take animals from the wild anymore unless it's like the numbers are so low yeah. that they are 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 saving them to try to to um, breed them to reintroduce them. Like like they had to do that for the black footed ferret, but most zoos, um, yeah, they 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 captive breed the animals. So um, so. Yeah, there's no chance these animals can go back to the wild anyway. Oh, I see. Wow. Incredible. Literally, like, yeah, it's crazy stuff. No, like, a, like, how do you know unless you issue. ask? You don't know unless you ask. That's <laughs> like my whole podcast. I just get people on. I'm like, I don't know anything about this. I'm going to learn what's going on. I'm like, then you can That's what I do on my podcast too. Right. Even if I think I know something, I'm just, I just start talking to them. <laughs> you just get filled with knowledge, right? And it's like from people who are passionate, they love this stuff. And it's like their life's professional work. And it's like, I could sense that joy in you. And just like, you just boom, answer comes out. It's automatic, <laughs> you know, it's like. Thank you. Yeah. So how has this culminated in the fancy scientists? I checked it out a little bit, but I'd love to hear it from your <laughs> point of view. So uh, that's just my my social media handle. And I, I named my website after that. Um, and I guess my business now that I've, I've changed to being an entrepreneur, yeah. but I, when I first started wildlife biology, I felt like I didn't fit in, 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 especially in graduate school, because 
like none of the women wore makeup and nobody would really dress up. <laughs> like they would wear like field clothes, like to the office. And I, I'm a little dressed down today because I'm yeah. when I feel weird dressing up at home. But <laughs> I um I, you know, I like dressing up. I like makeup. I like stereotypically girly things. Yeah. My my father owned a jewelry store. So, you know, I, I was always like looking at the diamonds. You're like an outlier like in your field is what you're saying. They're like, oh, you don't look yeah. like you've been out for like a, a month <laughs> in the, the rough, roughing it, right? <laughs> exactly. So, um, so yeah, I was that way. And for a while I, I toned it down cause I felt weird, but it's, it's just me. Like, you know how people need to get tattoos or, mm-hmm. um, you know, dress goth, or whatever. I felt like I expressed myself best by like dressing up more. And I started doing that. And then when I started working with teachers, they, they had this impression of what a scientist looked like, you know, like the, the lab coat and everything. Mm-hmm. And my teacher was just like, you know, you're like, you look so fancy. And she would just say <laughs> that. And it just kind of stuck and I liked it. And, and now I use it, um, to kind of set myself apart and also to bring attention to what scientists look like. Mm-hmm. So I, I feature a different fancy scientist every Friday and um, fancy is kind of a loose term. It, it definitely doesn't mean you're rich, um, but basically, right. like you have style or flair, and it can be, it can <laughs> be for that. any gender. Um, and I feature different people um, as a way to show, like these are what scientists look like. And mm-hmm. and like I, I even get responses from my dad, like, "Wow, that person's a scientist. You would have mm-hmm. never guessed that." <laughs> yeah. So, um, and at first, I thought I was only going to be able to do it for like I don't know a couple of months, but I keep finding people, so um, it keeps going, and it's it's really fun. I like it. Wow, I resonate with that completely, because <laughs> like when I was getting my doctorate, everybody that I saw looked nothing like me. And it was like the straight up like pocket protector, you know, (laughs) like, you know, like the padded elbows and stuff. And it was just like a very stereotypical looking person who had their doctorate or was doing research in science. And it was just kind of like, you know, here is the mold. Click here. Create another. Click here. And I probably influences my look. I'm like, yeah, I want to look different. I want to look, I want to have blonde streak in my hair. You know, I'm going to have black earrings and tattoos and stuff. And they're like, yeah, but I, you know, I have this degree and I'm doing work, you know, in this field and you don't, you can look how, how you want to look like how you feel that's more true and authentic to you. That sounds like you felt like that. You're like, I don't look like any of these people going out here, like doing this stuff. And that's okay. Yeah. well, I think now it's becoming more okay, yeah. but as a woman in scientist or woman in science, I frequently worried about people not taking me seriously. Mm-hmm. And I do think that is still a struggle, especially like with the way that we dress. Um, like, like it's hard to know what to wear to an interview and, and <laughs> especially yeah. in our field, like, do you dress up? Cause then people might think like, oh, you, you can't go to the field. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> but um, <laughs> But yeah, I do. That is something that um, I think like I was more worried about in the past, but with social media, there's more and more people coming out saying like, you know, I'm a scientist and 
I mean, so of course we had all the all the racial issues come to a head yeah. in the United States, and um, same thing in our science world. I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter, and there's a lot of scientists on Twitter. And I mean, science has a huge diversity problem, huge. Yeah, um, most definitely. And, um, and, and for diversity, I even say like, like you said, personality types, like, mm -hmm. like, like, you, like in order to be taken seriously, you have to like look a certain way and, yeah. and there's still that, um, that prejudice. Or it's like somebody stereotypically is just like so serious all the time and, it's like take my research very seriously, you know, like or like socially awkward. You know, you couldn't yeah. see that person is a typical academic person. You know, and academia had academia has had kind of all these controversies throughout the years of, you know, being in academia but not actually working in the field, and and you know, there's that too. Is I fight that in my profession, where it's like, you know, a lot of the people I studied under had actually never done the work that I do. They yeah. just are teaching about it and researching, exactly. but they're actually not practitioners of it. And I think that that becomes confusing too on some level, you know. Yeah, and that's another reason why I went more into science communication because I, I appreciate the research and I love doing research. Mm -hmm. I'm still associated with research, but quite often I felt like I'm doing research and then there's a publication on, you know, mammal communities or on forest mm -hmm. elephants, but on the ground, you know, they're being killed or mm -hmm. like, like I said, with climate change, like people don't care about the data. So I've yeah. just learned over the years that conservation is really a human issue. And if it's a science, I feel like it's much more of a social science and, mm. and understanding, like you said, how people think and yeah. how can we change how they think to get the outcomes that, that we want. And it's, I've become fascinated by that too. It's, it's, um, it's very interesting. What do you think about like, I'm, I'm sorry, I could ask you like 8 million questions. I, I don't even prepare anything. It just like we floods do, in my we brain. We can do a part two. I know we might have to, because I just like all of a sudden in my mind, I was like, I have to ask her about this of like why people place so much importance on their domestic animals, you know, cats, dogs, and then maybe okay. have less of a relationship with larger mammals or other things. Like what's the divide in that? I think it's because we learn individuals. You you live with your cat, you live with your dog, you know yeah. your personality. And there have been a couple of cases with wild animals like like um, Cecil the lion, that was a big one, or Harambe the gorilla, where the animal had a story about it. And mm -hmm. you know there could have been, I mean, I'm sure there's thousands of lions that die um, every year in, I forget what country that happened in Zimbabwe, that are, that are hunted, but... Um, but um, Cecil was known, I think, because he was older and and well studied, and um, and well also the whole issue of like he went outside the the park and everything. But um, people can like really attach to individuals, and um, even even more than wild and domestic. I and I struggle with this too. With our domestic animals, we prefer certain domestic animals yeah. over other ones. So like if you think about your pets. Like I feed my pets pet food and that's essentially other domestic animals like cows and chickens mm -hmm. and, and, um, unless you're buying your food and this ties into wellness as well, unless you're buying food from like sustainable farms that are more humane, yeah. uh, those animals are, are not treated well. Um, so, yeah. so I think, I think it's just about knowing individuals and about knowing the, the species as well. We, if we grew up living with pigs, I don't. Oh. 
And, and the messages you're taught too. people who do grow up with pigs are, are taught usually that that's food. And yeah. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's culture and what we learn, but I do think people are a little too crazy with their pets nowadays. <laughs> like, I have pets and I love them, but like some people it's like, man, oh my gosh, you put a lot of work into your pet. <laughs> I actually think it's, it's crazier than ever because when I was growing up in it the eighties, like, you know, people had dogs and stuff and cats, but it was like a very cavalier thing. It was like, oh yeah, I got a dog, you know? And now like the amount of people who are like strolling their little dog in a stroller or traveling with their pet, it's like explosive. And I'm like, I know. what happened to pets? One <laughs> of my blogger friends is making a, a dog um, cookbook. And oh like, like, <laughs> but like, and some of the recipes she was saying, like they sounded like I, I could eat them. And, and I was like, are there any, any recipes that like the humans can eat as well? And there were, there were ones like where you could make and your pet could eat. So, so yeah, I do love my pets and I take really good care of them. And I've always, you know, we've always had animals inside our house yeah. and sleeping on our beds and stuff. But, um, I do think people need to put it more in perspective and, <laughs> and, um, I don't know, but it's also what brings you joy too. Um, it's a wildlife so biologist going yeah. a little much with the pets here. <laughs> like we got dog cookbooks coming out. I mean, it's kind of nutty. <laughs> it's it's more that like I I would rather see. There's so much money spent in the pet industry. I yeah. would rather see like money from people dressing up their dogs, like rather that money go to like a shelter or something. Yeah, that's, I think that's yeah. what bothers me more. Okay. You can cook for your pets. That's fine, but. Sure. Um, but I do agree. It's this, it's this, or like, why, why don't you let your dog walk? I agree. The stroller. Yeah, why, why? You know how many times I see that? Like I'm walking, I'm like, oh, I'm looking I'm by the beach. I'm in, like, somebody comes strolling with their little dog in the stroller. I'm like, that dog can walk. Why? I'm like, it is like no exercise for the dog. Like, yeah. I know that's It's weird. like maybe that desire to want to like nurture something. And, you know, they start, people start treating their pets like they're like their children, like they birthed mm -hmm. them. And I always think that's really strange, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, like, I sometimes call myself like a fur mom jokingly, but um, <laughs> not that often because now pets are taken so seriously. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, or like, I don't know, like I'll be around with friends and they'll show pictures of their pets. Like they're the kids <laughs> and stuff. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's getting crazy out there. Well, <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. Literally, like I, I had like yeah, another you. bunch of this. We might have to do this again because I like. I yeah, keep, we could totally do this again. Yeah, you keep saying stuff, and I'm like, well, there's another question. <laughs> Let me ask about that. <laughs> so, well, thank you for your time, and uh, what a great thing! Everybody, go check out Fancy Scientists and everything that uh, Stephanie's up to. Because, man, amazing information. Amazing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>